Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we're speaking with Jamie Hawk, the Legal Strategy Director for the ACLU of Washington's Smart Justice Campaign. Jamie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. No, we appreciate it. Um, Today we're going to talk about bail reform. Jamie Hawk was just in Olympia, uh, Washington State's capital last week, testifying to the state legislature on bail reform. Bail reform has been in the news a lot lately, and so that's why we're going to talk about it today. Just the other day, Time published a piece that was authored by John Legend calling for bail reform speaking to some of the disparities within the the system as it currently is. And we've seen states moving forward, reports on the task force that they've assembled to address bail reform. And even the ABA just announced a partnership with Arnold Ventures for pretrial justice. So we're looking forward to seeing that move forward. So today we're going to jump in first with the current state of bail reform. Help us understand where this all starts from. What What is the bail system and what was it originally designed to do? Money bail, generally, the intent of it was to ensure that people accused of a criminal offense appear for their court dates. So when a judge is deciding whether to release a person before their trial and under what conditions, if any, bail was supposed to be something that the defendant could afford to pay and would help incentivize their appearance back to court. How has that played out? Is that the role that bail systems has turned out to play or has it turned into more than that? So much of the momentum and the movement that is is, is building around the country uh, calling for pretrial and bail reforms is is largely focused on the the use of money bail and the very high pretrial detention rates nationally when you look at who's in county jails around the country the national average is around 60% of the folks in the jail on any given day uh, are simply accused of an offense, they've not been convicted, and they're held in jail uh, on money bail that they, they can't afford to pay. And so much of the movement and the reform is looking at this state of mass incarceration, these high pretrial detention rates for folks that may be accused of a felony, oftentimes a misdemeanor, lower-level offenses, and they're being detained because the bail is so high and it's out of their means and they have no ability to post it. Mm-hmm. And so on one side of the debate, we have people moving for reform like yourself, have been able to recognize that a lot of people are ending up in jail longer than they should be because they weren't able to pay bail. Um, and it's what are some of the consequences that people without means run into in these sort of situations? Right. So having this two-tiered system that 
um, arguably discriminates against those living in poverty and, and results in them being um, trapped in jail and oftentimes um, largely coerced to plead guilty to get out of jail because they face so many consequences. And often that can include uh, they lose their job, they may lose their housing, they could potentially lose custody of their children, uh, oftentimes uh, any medications that they may be taking get disrupted by being detained in the jail. So people's lives are really turned upside down and they face a wide range of very serious consequences. And so um, that's another reason why often, as I mentioned, people will sometimes plead guilty just to get out. Yeah, that's another issue that we're going to take up further on another podcast interview is the current state of plea bargaining is, is getting out of control, which, um, you know, I think for, for many citizens that are removed from this personally and don't find themselves or someone that they care about in this situation of being accused of a crime, not even convicted, just accused, if we're presuming innocence, then this seemingly innocent bystander is getting put in, in prison, and it could really affect their financial situation and their family situation. And I think the presumption is that if you're innocent, you're not going to plead guilty to something that you haven't done. But the reality is, is that they feel like they have to accept those plea deals just to preserve their their financial means, their retain custody of their children, like you said. Jamie, have you seen any of that in in your experience? Yeah, absolutely. And I, as a criminal um, defense attorney, both in the federal and state legal systems for several years, and it's very difficult until you're in the shoes of someone who is um, accused of an offense and, and facing so many consequences and feeling trapped in jail because you don't have an ability to pay and can't post to get out. It's a very real problem in our justice system and, and fundamentally why the money bail system is so unfair. Right. And so that's one side of the bail reform debate. And can you help us understand what the other side is? There's some opposition that people are running into in, in getting reform and some of that around a public safety concern or the bail system has become something it wasn't intended to be. Can you clue us in on some of those concerns? I think the the growing momentum um, for reform around the country has been a dramatic increase in focus and understanding around the harms of pretrial detention and what we've been talking about today and what people are suffering and how this is not resulting in fair outcomes or just outcomes in so many cases. And so but over the years, in several states, there has been a bail bonds industry that has grown and is actually a multi-million, actually in a billion-dollar industry if we were to look um, nationwide. And so the bail bonds industry profits every time a judge imposes money bail and a person is, has to post, and also if it's surety bail and have collateral and the amount of the bail imposed, and then the bail company keeps a, a 10% cut. So it's a for-profit industry in large part profiting oftentimes on the backs of folks who are low income and living in poverty. And that's very 
precious resources coming away from food, housing, or rent, and other medical and other necessary expenses. And so it's sort of looking at how do you move away from this use of money bail and kind of dismantle this for-profit system that exists in so many states. And that is hard when there are people that are looking at it as a source of income. Nobody wants to lose that, but we can't do that at the price of others living their lives. So going back to something you mentioned is the discrimination factor. So many claim that the current state of bail reform is discriminatory. Some have claimed racial discrimination as well. Can you shed some light on what that's referring to? Yes, yeah, so the discriminatory uh, impact, I think, and that the sort of the wealth-based detention uh, system that that we've been talking about is is sort of looking at how money bail, uh, especially for people who are indigent and living in poverty and have no means really at all to even pay a very small amount of bail, truly does create this two-tiered system. So if a person is wealthy or has means, they can simply post the bail amount that the judge has imposed, and they get out, no strings attached. They're free to work with their attorney and fight their, the charges against them and very often get a better outcome in their case when they're released pretrial and to, like I mentioned, work with their attorney in those ways. And everyone else, if you're in poverty and indigent and you you can't post, you're, you're stuck in jail and essentially being punished before being convicted. And there is not a presumption of innocence or a presumption of release as, as most legal systems have. And so that often is the, I think, primary focus of the uh, discriminatory claims and, and aspects of the system that can often result in vast racial disparity and disproportionality around the country as well. So many states have been looking to gather data on these issues, right? As I mentioned, yes. New York released their task force report recently. When we were speaking before we began this interview, you mentioned that New Jersey and California have both passed legislation, right? Yes. And also Washington State has been pursuing. Can you bring us up to speed on what these states have been doing and, and what we're seeing across the country? And then more specifically, what's happening in Washington State? Great. Yeah. So several states have formed statewide task force to start diving in and identifying uh, the types of pretrial bail reforms that may be needed in their state and local jurisdictions. Oftentimes, I'm sure with California and New Jersey, as was the case here in Washington with our statewide pretrial reform task force, the need for improved data collection around pretrial is so critical. We look at who is being detained, who's locked up in our jails right now. It's very helpful to have comprehensive data on what the pretrial detention population is, as we seen in Washington and several of our counties, you know, the national average is 60%, but we have 70%, even a little higher than 70% uh, pretrial detention rate in some of our, our county jails. So having that data is critical and then breaking that down. So looking at you know, if, if you've got almost three quarters of your jail being detained of, with folks pre-trial, what are they accused of? 
felony versus misdemeanor. What is the amount of money bail that they're being held on? We've seen in one of our counties, like 40% of folks were held on lower level misdemeanors. And the bail amount that was imposed was $5,000 or less. So these were folks that had no ability to post even 500 or $400 um, to be released. The vast majority of, of folks in the country uh, can't come up with even $400 to bail out. So, so the data collection piece is absolutely important, and I think a lot of states have been really looking at how do we improve our data systems and how can we do a better job of digging down and improving data collection. And then uh, as you asked specifically about reforms, various states through either Supreme Court task force or convenings of other stakeholders, we've sort of pulled together many folks to really look at the harms of pretrial detention, um, specifically for us in Washington State, and what are the types of reforms? How can we bring down significantly the use of money bail and the pretrial detention population in our state? So we are looking at many of those things now. Primarily, we're looking at pretrial services and kind of building that infrastructure, looking at least restrictive and community-based alternatives. So judges feel like they can um, not use money bail and release folks safely into the community with some low-level monitoring. And so last week, you were testifying in Olympia to state legislature on these issues, correct? Um, what were yes. some of the pretrial infrastructure recommendations that you were making? Can you tell us more? So the testimony last week was in large part focused on our Washington State Auditor has released a report and looking at this high pretrial detention population in our state, the report looked what counties and, and cities are currently paying the daily jail costs for approximately 6,500 Washingtonians. And so they identified that nearly three quarters or 4,700 of those folks currently detained should be released onto pretrial services. So they were looking at the question of are pretrial services an effective alternative to money bail and found that indeed it could be in counties and cities by setting up this infrastructure, um, releasing folks onto pretrial services could save between six to twelve million dollars a year in Washington State. So our uh, my testimony was focused on some of those findings and um, just really trying to raise awareness with the legislature around how this pretrial detention is truly the pipeline to mass incarceration in Washington State and that, you know, we have a current court rule that honors the presumption of innocence and assumes that folks will be released pretrial without financial conditions and that we're working to enforce that court rule consistently around the state and asking the legislature and, and sharing that, you know, we're looking forward to working with them to find paths to, to invest in these pretrial reforms and um, build that uh, necessary uh, pretrial infrastructure to reduce our jail population. So pretrial services, and then I, if I haven't mentioned, there's great research out there that shows just having basic court reminder text messaging systems does an incredible job of cutting down on unnecessary warrants and really helping people get back to court. So we've got um, a few counties that are working with a company called Uptrust and some other vendors to truly just do a better job of supporting people getting back to court and even looking into providing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Before our conversation, you know, I keep saying bail reform has been in the news a lot, and I was reading that Spokane and Yakima counties have reported that their new text reminder systems that prompt defendants before their court dates have improved appearance rates by 26% for low-level offenses, which is really significant. And yes. so I'm actually, I'm, I'm proud to read that because Yakima County is actually the county I grew up in, turns out. <laughs> so oh, go Yakima. Um, <laughs> but I was also reading that they're using a pretrial assessment tool to assess the risks and of, of the defendants, whether they would show up for jail or will they commit a violent offense while on pretrial release. And I know that there's some concern about the use of tools like this, but that was like it was part of the recommendation of the task force in Washington State. Is that right? Uh, actually, no. Uh, we oh, okay. had a lot of vigorous debate, um, as you've highlighted, uh, around the use of pretrial risk assessment tools. And some of us, including many judges, have uh, many concerns about the use of such a tool, particularly the impacts on race and racial disparity. Any tool is only going to be as good as the data that is put into it. And so last summer, over 100 civil rights organizations signed on to a shared statement of concern um, in opposition to the use of pretrial risk assessment tools. So when it came to our Washington State Task Force, we had some robust discussions and debates and ultimately um, did not recommend or endorse the use of risk assessment tool, but did try to put together some principles for any counties or cities that might consider using one. And for Yakima, if I could quickly highlight, and that's wonderful that you're a native Washingtonian and have Yakima roots, and uh, they got uh, a federal DOJ grant to look at um, some pretrial reforms that could be implemented a couple of years ago. And truly, one of the most um, important reforms that they uh, implemented was providing counsel to everyone at their initial court appearance. So previous to the grant and the reforms being implemented, the judge and prosecutor would be in court, but there was no public defender representing the defendant at their initial appearance. And so people in Yakima were sitting in jail for up to 10 to 14 days until their next court date or their arraignment. And so after the reforms, they got an experienced defender to meet with everybody before court and make sure, um, you know, gathering relevant and important information to provide to the judge. And so that has had a very important impact in releasing uh, more defendants be released pretrial and bringing down that detention rate. And then they also had pretrial services, text reminders, and uh, did use a risk assessment tool. And then there's also talk of helping with the transportation issue because for some people getting to court really is just a you know, not having the means to get themselves there. Yeah, and we're, and we're trying to look at that um, specifically for Washington State and various counties because you're right. I mean, often the courthouse is downtown, you know, and it's very difficult for many folks who might live like here in Seattle and King County could live very far away and 
oftentimes public transportation or traffic can be very difficult, and it's very hard to get downtown and appear for all your court dates. So we've been looking at some other alternatives and options and resources to really tackle that issue and support people making their court dates. Yeah. So we have been talking a lot about Washington State is doing, so I think that kind of implies the answer to this question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it. We've talked about states pursuing bail reform. Is there a standardized bail reform system that is being adopted across states, or is each state pursuing their own respective path toward bail reform? Both. <laughs> so I think I think uh, <laughs> but most states are are definitely pursuing their their own path um, toward pretrial and bail reform and having robust discussions about what that looks like and what may be needed in terms of infrastructure, resources, et cetera. But, uh, you know, because so for some states, it's been a legislative campaign, uh, like California and New Jersey, so changing the statutes or potentially the state constitution in some ways. Here in Washington, you know, where we have a strong court rule that our Minority and Justice Commission did. Great work on several years ago. We have been focusing on consistent enforcement and implementation and the necessary culture change that kind of goes along with some of these reforms, whether it's a court rule change or a statutory change. And so looks a little bit different potentially in some other states as well. So but I think some of the common threads have we've discussed already today, looking at building that infrastructure, having pretrial services in place where we're connecting folks with any resources that they may request or need, and just having low-level monitoring in place so that when a judge is releasing someone, they know that there's somebody check the defendant is checking in with and that any conditions of release imposed are being followed. So um, looking at pretrial services, the auto Court reminder text message systems is another very popular, I think almost every state probably is, is looking at that. So I would say the, that pretrial infrastructure kind of in, in that general field is kind of the common package that I think most states are, are looking at. And so as we look to the future and bail reform, how long is the road to reform? Oh, great question. I wish I had a crystal ball and could <laughs> tell you exactly when we're going to get there. But these are big, bold system reforms and truly trying to roll back mass incarceration and really scale back significantly the number of people that are being detained in our jails yeah. upon being accused of an offense and the culture change. I think that is one of the biggest challenges and themes that's sort of been running through the the bail reform movement in our state. And I'm, I'm fairly confident um, around the country because, you know, getting to that place of truly having a presumption of release in practice. And if any money bail is going to be used at all, that making sure that there truly is a meaningful individualized determination of ability to pay um, before any money bail is used. And that is we've been kind of set in our ways with relied upon the bail industry for, for many, many decades. And so kind of dismantling that and implementing many of these reforms and the necessary resources and investments that it's going to take to reform the system in this way is, is definitely taking time. But I'm very optimistic. I think this is the top criminal justice reform issue. Momentum is continuing to build. More and more people are 
are paying attention and really invested in reforming the systems in these ways. And so I'm I'm hopeful that with that growing momentum, you know, looking into 2019 and 2020, that we can start to see dramatic decreases in jail populations and improved outcomes and less disparity all around. That's great. Well, we really appreciate you sharing that with us. Before we began recording this interview, uh, you had mentioned that you were involved in getting the audit kicked off in Washington State. Not the audit. All credit oh, sorry, goes to to our auditor's office. Uh, I did I did have a, a small role in getting our our statewide task force formed, and um, thanks to um, Justice Mary Yu on our statewide. Washington Supreme Court, as well as Judge Sean O'Donnell with King County Superior Court and Judge Logan with our district and municipal courts. Uh, the three of them formed an executive committee for our task force, but I had the privilege of working with um, PJI and their three days count campaign and kind of bringing stakeholders together initially to start looking at whether we could get Washington State signed up for that three days count campaign. And we organized a a symposium for our Supreme Court justices to kind of really kick off and frame these issues for our state. And then at the symposium, we made an ask for a statewide task force to be formed. So it's been exciting to see that work develop and more and more stakeholders come on board since that time. Wow. And that's not the only place that you've been involved, right? Because you, for our listeners, Jamie is one of the council members for the criminal justice section. And the criminal justice section has put forward resolutions. And you serve as one of the delegates for our section. So can you give us a refresher on what that resolution was around bail reform? Yes, we've had some some great and meaningful um, conversations at the section council level around the need for pretrial and bail reform and uh, it was great to work with a couple of fellow council members and other entities within the ABA to focus on how we could be a part of this national bail reform conversation and potentially provide some momentum and advance reform. And so we did, uh, through the section draft of, of resolution, focusing on uh, the need for governments to adopt policies that favor release on recognizance, so pretrial release without the use of money bail and advocating that pretrial detention should not occur solely on the ability to pay, right? And so kind of tackling this issue that we've been talking about today, about how so many, the vast majority of folks that are detained pretrial are there because they they can't afford to pay money bail. So we adopted that resolution through the ABA House of Delegates in 2017 and continue to to talk about what's going on around the country related to pretrial and bail reform and how we can, you know, also be a part of the advocacy and reform efforts. Well, that must keep you pretty busy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk to us and share, share the progress of this important work. Well, thank you again for joining us. And we look forward to learning more about how things progress and thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of the Just Pod.